Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs improve society, and this podcast is part of that effort. Last week was our first time doing the partner meeting format, and I was pretty into it. We got a nice response. Uh, this is our second version of it. So uh, I think it's a pretty good shot. We have a lot of stuff for everyone, so I hope you enjoy it. Before we jump in, I wanted to share some of my own thoughts, things I'm thinking about. And the topic I wanted to go into today for just a minute is the concept of work-life integration. Now, it's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot today, but you're going to hear over and over as I'm getting a little bit more freestyle on the podcast, I'm a big history nerd. And work-life integration was actually the norm for all of human history until the Industrial Revolution. You woke up, you foraged for food, or once there was a farm, you went out and collected eggs or whatever else, and sustenance and survival were integrated into your social daily routines. When the Industrial Revolution hit, we introduced the time of the, the concept of like the clock really being part of the day, right? The dependency on it. And now we're all used to it. You have your alarm set in the morning, you know what time you're supposed to be at work. And there became a line in the sand between what was work and what was personal that didn't exist until 150 years ago, which is not long in our collective history. I think that line is now blurring. The technology we have allows us to be on all the time, which is both delightful and terrible. It's leading to all the addictive behaviors where people can't look up at the dinner table because they're looking at their phone. I might be guilty of that sometimes. Uh, but I, I also think it's creating this wonderful opportunity where if you have a role you perform in society, a calling and work that gives you meaning, it's the opportunity to kind of live your fullest life all the time while still making space for your personal needs, which don't always happen at nights and on the weekends. Sometimes you need to see a doctor on a Tuesday afternoon. So I really believe work-life integration is increasingly the way forward for a sophisticated work environment. And it's something I'm thinking a lot about at Interplay. This is why it's relevant. When I'm thinking about the types of activities we're building within our firm, I'm thinking more than, hey, what's going to make the most money? What is the next move in the puzzle piece to build our operation? I'm thinking about this additional shade, this additional color of what is going to create the work-life integration that everyone on our team wants to live. So we're really excited. We're going to be ramping up our events program, uh, which we think will have wonderful business benefits, but it's also a great blurred gray area. When you're going out to work events with people you find intellectually stimulating, people you work with, who you care about, it's a wonderful way to merge those two parts of life. So for the managers out there, the executives who are trying to figure out, you know, how you handle time on, time off, take a moment, step back, and see if you can reimagine a better life where work and life are integrated, but st people still have sufficient personal space. All right, now that my monologue is out of the way, uh, without further ado, let's jump into this. We've got a lot for you today. Enjoy. All right, Chris. What's going on in the world in the markets? 
Pleasure to be here, Mark. Um, it's been a very interesting week. Uh, again, we started off on a very strong footing uh, in the U.S. market, really on the back of uh, a softer than expected manufacturing data. The S&P, for instance, uh, rallied, uh, you, know, you know, basically a two-day rally we had Monday, Tuesday was as strong as we had in, since April this year, uh, or in fact, since 2020. And the um, market was sort of really trying to find uh, the balance between a short covering uh, buy momentum and uh, sort of expectations of future data coming out, uh, which usually is, uh, you know, good news is bad news and bad news is good news. Um, today, arguably, we had the most important data coming out this uh, this week, which uh, uh, the week of, uh, um, you know, as, as I speak, uh, you know, Friday of October, October 7th. Um, NFP, which is non-farm payroll, largely regard the most important job data in the U.S., came out stronger than expected at 263,000 new jobs added. Um, and that brought down our unemployment rate to 3.5%, still historically low number. It's important to know that um, as you delve into these data, uh, private sector jobs is stronger than ever. The number is actually 288K. So public sector job is what suffered in the, in the month of September. Um, and average hourly earnings is actually uh, stronger again, month on month, about 0.3% on a yearly basis, uh, year on year, that's about 5% stronger. What that means is uh, the strength of the labor market is, again, uh, sort of giving the Fed more reasons to stay on course uh, of the current hiking cycle. The next Fed meeting is uh, first week of November, and um, Mark is largely pricing in yet another 75 basis point uh, of a hike. To sort of complicate things going forward, next week is the start. Next week, the week of October 10th, is the start of earnings season for Q3. Q2, um, we have seen sort of stronger than expected data pretty much across all sectors. Um, and with all the supply chain destruction um, and uh, all the weakness in the market, it's largely expected that Q3 earnings will show through some of these numbers. So, of course, we also have CPI uh, in the, you know, next week, October 10th, uh, October 10th, and we're going to see all eyes will be on that data alone. And, and, and from that point onwards, we'll have um, expectations set for the November meeting. Isn't there a positive silver lining in this narrative? I mean, you're saying, hey, we had inflation. We had a 20-year period where we had interest rates at the federal level below historical norms. Yeah. They've now started churning those interest rates back up to historical norms. And despite that, the economy is remaining, it's affected for sure, but the underlying KPIs of the strength of the economy are so robust it's so strong that there it's not collapsing on itself with this new pressure and so yes the fed will probably raise interest rates and that will inevitably slow down the economy and have other consequences but isn't this a story that like hey the american economy is so strong that the fed is able to recalibrate the interest rates back to historical norms without causing some sort of widespread depression and we're able to recalibrate 
all of the different pieces in our market around what is a more historically sustainable federal interest rate. Isn't that the macro narrative? I mean, we all hate the short term. It's, a, it's screwing everybody up. It's a lot of frictional bone resetting for the collective economy. But the story, if you're going to zoom out from a historical perspective, is Americans are making things. Innovation yeah. is happening, right? Uh, jobs are being created. And yes, there's a lot of dislocation and people are losing jobs, and I'm not dismissing that. That is, per, in, on an idiosyncratic level, the pain is very real, and people see their stock portfolios going down. Yep. But it is not a catastrophe. It is not 1920. It is not 2008. This yep. is a healthy entity having its bones reset in a way that it's enduring really well. Isn't that the macro narrative that we're seeing? Yeah, I, I I definitely agree with that. Um, in in you know as investors in risky assets, you 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 know we get really um we're, we we get you really used to sort of listening you know get letting the Fed dictate the tone in the market, and what the Fed has been projecting to all of us over the past really ten fifteen years is that there is this so called neutral rate that they're trying to get to that's somewhere in you know around two to three percent. Of course, currently we're over that. So it's it's the expectation is the Fed is trying their best to slow down the economy. Of course, in a soft landing way possible, but it's um, what they're really trying to do is to, of course, calm inflation at the cost of potential higher un unemployment, higher than historical average. We're again at the his historically low numbers in unemployment and cool demand, cool wages. We haven't seen that yet. So the expectation is that that will continue to tighten up and that will impact really all things, uh, you know, in, in this sum of cash flow model, the numerator and the denominator in many different ways. So it's, in, it's, it's impo impossible not to price in some sort of short term, medium term shock. Uh, but also everyone's still trying to keep in mind the long term future, long term picture here, which is what, exactly what you said. We're still in a really good spot um, as, as a country and also really as a species. We'll just continue to innovate and make uh, new frontiers possible. All right, I'm going to throw a curveball at you here. Sure. Uh, as you know, I'm a big history nerd. I've listened to kind of any history podcast and get my hands on. I think I finished Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and I'm a good way through Martyr Made. Both great podcasts for those who are interested in history. And there's a bunch of other great ones out there. Uh, it's hard to be a history nerd without paying attention to historically significant moments. And we're clearly living through one right now. Uh, Biden, you know, just recently said that we're at the greatest risk of nuclear experiment, like a nuclear uh, attack that since we, that we've been in since the Bay of Pigs, right? doesn't necessarily mean on American soil. Uh, I listen to people who are smart around this space. I'm personally very attuned because I think things are getting pretty real right now. Uh, and I have heard a couple of big insights uh, about recent events that I want to understand the extent to which you're seeing them priced into the market. So the first thing is the actual uh, bombing of the gas pipelines between Russia and Europe is yep. more than 
a mere milestone in this conflict. It has been described by people I respect and that seem to be wise in the matter as a historical moment where there is a complete severing of how Western Europe is going to actually build its infrastructure and get uh, oil and energy from Russia. It's not going to happen anymore. The odds of those being fixed, and they're probably fairly irreparable, is what I was told, is very low. So they have just severed basically kind of one landmass, but two like continents of some level, and how their economies function, their codependency. It may be a hundred-year historical moment, uh, what just happened. The second thing is I heard another person say, hey, the odds of Putin using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, in one person's opinion, has reached about 70%. So more likely than not that he's going to use some sort of weapon of mass destruction in Ukraine. Now, the rationale the person presented was, look, Putin is not going to lose the war. And the more success Ukraine has, the more Putin is going to escalate it to win. To be clear, doesn't mean that if he uses a nuke in Ukraine, that we will have global nuclear warfare or even a world war. Okay. But it certainly is historically significant. If there, I mean, we, we haven't seen nukes used in a long, long time since World War II. If with these things happening, to what extent do you feel like the geopolitical framework is being priced into the market? And to what extent do you feel as you bridge from public markets to the private sector where interplay lives and innovation, these factors are already integrated into our economic realities? Are they, are we already living through it or they're not really priced in? They're not really affecting business the way business is done. That's a great question. And frankly, to cover all that, it it will take hours to really delve into the details. But what I can say is, at this point, it's safe to say that the market is not priced in anywhere close to a full-on nuclear confrontation. Easy evidence of that is if you just look at how the U.S. market has been doing, um, you know, where, say, the, the major indices are, we're still right around the same level of December 2020. Um, earnings haven't gone up much, but the world is a much worse, worse place uh, in terms of liquidity, in terms of geopolitical conference, confrontations. So, look, we're, we're, we're not, we definitely are not pricing a nuclear war for confrontations. The market is still processing what's happened um, with the gas pipeline. We don't know what will happen with the winter in Europe. Um, I think, you know, there's some definitely uh, expectation that things will be difficult, um, which is why you see movements in currency, movement in rates, move, the volatility that was introduced into the market in the last couple of weeks. But in terms of pure asset price levels, we're nowhere near to be fully priced in on any of these big confrontations. And not to mention, you know, risk in China, risk in, uh, uh, you know, South America. Really, um, correct, exactly, all over the place. Uh, it's, it's, it's impossible to price all these things perfectly. Um, it will take a few, mo- for a few more months for market to digest the information that we're currently receiving. All right, just so not to scare people, when we're talking about nuclear confrontation here, we're not talking about 
every nuke gets fired on the planet and Earth is uninhabitable. There is no risk level for that. Right. <laughs> then the stock market doesn't matter. Um, yeah. We're talking about a local tactical nuke used in Ukraine, not triggering a nuclear response. But that in and of itself, I think, has psychological ramifications for how everyone perceives the global safety, security dynamics. Yep. Um, and it's just a lot of, there's a lot of interesting things happening right now that are pretty scary. Yeah, 100%. But as you, as you always say, we also want to think about the long-term rosy future of humanity in general. So it's, it's let's not forget that uh, all these things we're talking about hopefully are for medium and, and short term. There's still innovations going on all over the place. So. Yep. I'm an optimist. I think we'll rise above it. But uh, this is an interesting moment. This is a, certainly a significant moment in time. Uh, yep. And for those who are kind of putting, poo-pooing it, I think this moment will be a chapter in the history books. It's already significant enough. Yep. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Brett, what's up, buddy? Let's dive in. What do you got? All right. Yeah. So uh, this week, I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, interoperability and blockchain. So one of the or a few of the purported benefits of using public blockchains is, is interoperability and composability, right? That that no matter what it is, any sort of value or anything that's owned uh, can share, share the same rails, right? I can own a piece of art and throw that into DeFi. I can have an NFT in a game and throw that somewhere else. So this generally works very well within a blockchain, um, but th this has proven quite difficult when we're talking about communicating between blockchains, right? Consider if I have assets on Ethereum and I want to move those over to Solana, how do I do that efficiently and also, uh, well, most, most importantly, safely? Uh, and currently, the way most people do that is uh, through a process called bridging. And it's easy to think of it as basically locking up tokens on one chain and then either unlocking or minting or creating a, a representation of that token on another. So uh, yesterday, actually, Binance Smart Chain, uh, the, the chain run by uh, the big exchange Binance, was hacked for at least $100 million on their cross-chain bridge. Uh, but actually, about $600 million was withdrawn from uh of bnb from the chain so it could have been much worse but they luckily uh apparently were able to halt the chain before anything worse could happen um and now this is a big problem uh chainalysis they they came out with a study and said uh that this year almost 70 percent of all stolen crypto was from hacked bridges which is about two billion dollars mm. so it represents a real weak point um in the ecosystem um, and that includes, you know, earlier earlier this year, we saw Axie Infinity sidechain, uh, which connects to Ethereum, was hacked for for about 600 million bucks. Uh, Wormhole, which was another popular bridge, uh, was hacked for for about 300 million bucks. Nomad, 200 million dollars. So it's it's a really big uh, a really big problem. And it also uh, starts to get politicians involved because, uh, again, that same study estimated that a billion dollars worth of it has been stolen from uh, by North, North Korea. So uh, this sort of, you know, ties into, uh, you know, why a lot of institutions are, are hesitant about stepping into the space. And it really doesn't look good overall uh, for for this uh, for for crypto and blockchains in general, though we are optimistic that somebody's going to figure it out. 
Um, which leads to uh, my my second piece of news, which is uh, that there are some blockchains that are trying to figure this out, uh, one of which is Cosmos. So Cosmos was built to natively allow sovereign blockchains to communi- communicate with each other via the Cosmos, they call it the Cosmos Hub, which basically coordinates uh, all the different communications between uh, these different blockchains. Um, they call it yeah, you know, a network of networks or, or an internet uh, of blockchains. Um, so anybody that uses the Cosmos software to create their blockchains natively is is capable of speaking to other blockchains that that use this software. Um, <clears throat> but the problem is, is even if I use the Cosmos software and I'm I'm embedded into the the other ecosystem of of blockchains, I need to bootstrap my own validator set to secure my own network. And for smaller blockchains, that's that's quite difficult, right? Um, especially when you have uh, a large number of other validators or ecosystems out there that you can you can tap into. Um, so last week, Cosmos uh, released their white paper for uh, Cosmos 2.0, and amongst other things, uh, they're adding uh, the ability to have interchain security. Uh, so essentially, what that means is uh, newer blockchains can can get up and running and be embedded into the Cosmos ecosystem, but without having to initially worry about having security, they can outsource it to the Cosmos hub. Um, so this is a really big deal. You know, it, it was a problem for for some of the smaller chains. So now, not only do you natively get uh, interoperability, but uh, you you get a shared layer of security as well. And and sort of why is all of this important? Um, you know, one of the things we believe is going to happen with with all this technology is that it's going to get abstracted away, um, and developers and you know potentially institutions that are deploying on these chains, they're the ones that are going to be either choosing or seeing that layer. Consumers are not right. I just have my money here, or I have my assets there. I it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I just am able to do again, uh, am able to do something better or more efficient that I that I couldn't do before. So one of the the big to create, you know, the fabric of the space and and sort of a mesh of different blockchains, you need to have interoperability. And it's and it's uh, super important for us to get that right. I love topics like this because I think when everyone thinks blockchain, they still think the first application, which was the currency, the crypto. Yeah. And when we start talking about this type of infrastructure, it illuminates the bigger mission of building this layer of technology that will power a lot of software in the future. Yeah. Um, it just makes so much intuitive sense. Um, yeah. let, me, let me ask a question. I think it's foundational. Uh, that I have a feeling some people are probably wondering is why do we need more than one blockchain? Why not just have yeah. everyone teaming up and building, you know, within the Ethereum blockchain or something else? Yeah. You know, why isn't there a winner take all? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why do we need, the reason, why do we, why are we creating this interoperability issue? Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> a lot of people ask that, um, and there's actually been a lot of chatter now about app specific chains, which sort of takes it even you know further uh, to to the extreme in terms of you know being solely focused on one one application. But the reason uh, this happens is, you know, Ethereum, for example, it's quite expensive uh, to be because people are competing for block space. So for security, people might be willing to pay more f- to use Ethereum, right? 
But then there's some other applications like, let's say, algorithmic trading, where latency, speed, and cheapness of transactions is important. So these are different types of trade-offs that are made at different on uh, different blockchains uh, that are more well suited to different applications. So it's important for you know, let's say, a gaming company who who very much you know can sacrifice, let's say, security for allowing you know a, a hundred million people to be able to transact uh, concurrently across that network. They need that bandwidth. So um, it, you know, some applications they have different. Data requirements, for example, there's there's a, a data limit uh, to post onto Ethereum. There might be other blockchains that are more data intensive uh, or ap applications that need to be able to post more data to the the base layer. Um, so there there's a number of trade offs that aren't specific can't be specifically addressed by a single blockchain. So um, it only makes sense to sort of outsource that to either its own app specific chain. Um, or, you know, to another chain, like, let's say, you know, Solana is very popular with high frequency traders for the simple reason that throughput and transaction fees or throughput's high, but transaction fees are so low. Um, and so that's, that's why you uh, can envision this world of, of a whole bunch of different chains. Super helpful. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Mark. All right, Fong. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Mark, how are you? Um, so today I wanted to talk to you guys about customer insights and the importance of really understanding your customer so that you can best position your product to suit their needs. So customer insight looks really different depending on your business, right? So when I worked at a chain of retail stores, a lot of our customer insight involved being in the stores, observing customers, seeing how they shopped and engaged with products, and then asking them why they bought or didn't buy. When I ran an e-commerce company, customer insight came in the form of heat maps and metrics like bounce rate and average session time. You know, we hit up social media comments and DMs. There are just tons of ways of getting customer insights. And you really should be using a range of these methods and making sure that you're choosing the best ones for your business and the type of feedback that you're trying to get. But regardless of how you're doing it, here are three things to keep in mind when you're getting customer insight. Number one, make it as easy and as enjoyable as possible for your customers to give you feedback. So create lots of touch points for feedback, chat box, Chatbots, surveys, emails, go to your customer where they are and talk to them when they want to talk to you. And remember that user experience matters when you're getting feedback. So if you're conducting a survey, keep it simple, keep it easy, make sure it's well, de well designed and representative of your brand and proofread. Look for typos and spelling errors. If it looks like you weren't thoughtful in creating the survey, your customer's not going to be thoughtful in filling out the answers or they might just abandon the survey altogether. And don't make the customer do too much work. So open-ended questions can be really insightful, but they take a long time to answer. So don't ask 20 of them. Number two, don't mistake observations for insights. So observations are exactly that. It's what you see, it's what you hear, it's just raw data, it's just numbers. Insight is really getting at the core of why, what are the customer preferences and motivations behind the data that you're seeing? Understanding that really requires a lot of empathy, putting your, yourself in your customer's shoes and really understanding why they feel the way that they do. 
And once you're able to do that, then you can come up with solutions that meet their needs. Now, last tip, number three, customers can't always accurately convey what they experienced or what they want. So for example, a post-purchase survey really relies on a customer's memory of a checkup process, which could have happened days or sometimes even weeks ago. So they may not remember all the details and the feedback may not be 100% dependable, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't use the surveys. It probably just means you should complement it with some real-time feedback like a remote user test or something. Um, it's really hard for customers to tell you what they want. So, you know, for example, before Instagram was created, no one would have been able to tell you that they wanted Instagram. So sometimes I find it's easier to ask customers what they don't want and then couple that with insight on the problem that you're trying to solve, come up with a solution, show that solution to customers and get their feedback. This is a, this is a topic I really love. So I can go on and on with this list, but I'm going to stop here today. That is awesome. Uh, this is a big thing, and I'm taking an abstract it a little bit. Being a data-driven CEO, management group, and team generally is something that not every group does. And when we meet founders that don't know their numbers or don't think about how they're tr- dialing the business to optimize the numbers, it's like driving without with the windshield covered in mud, right? You don't know what's going on. Uh, so this is a big thing. I think for founders listening who are not instinctually hungry for this type of knowledge, try to strengthen that muscle by forcing yourself to do it. And if you're just, it's just not your bag and you're not into it, compliment, add to your team, going back to what you talked about last week in the Superman analysis, you need to get someone on the team who's looking at data. Have you seen a lot of founders struggle with this, Fung? Um, you know, I I have I actually have seen founders struggle with the second part. It's not really the, I, the data part. It's actually analyzing the data and getting to kind of the qualitative, the, the motivations and what the data means. That's the part that I think takes um, a little bit more getting used to. You've got to you know be. It, it's a mix of like left brain, right brain that gets that gets to be a little difficult. And how are you guys doing that in your experience? Are you guys spitballing and saying, hey, we've got this data, what could it mean? Brainstorming two or three options and then trying to do another test or something to figure it out. How do you get from uh, part one to part two? Yeah, I think it's a lot of discussing, uh, you know, with with a, a team with your entire team. So, like, you know, ideas can come from anywhere. D- discussing with your entire team, kind of different hypotheses as to why you were seeing the data that you're seeing, and then going back to the customer again and validating that hypothesis. Um, you know, and just I just talk to everyone about it. It's not just you know, it's not like it's not just a quantitative thing. You know, if I have a hypothesis, I talk to my friends about it. I talk to you know other moms. It's just really kind of getting. It's it's really kind of like a human um, behavioral thing. So it's great to get feedback from everywhere. Yeah. So the data is the first step. What you're saying exactly in the, exactly. In the journey. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will see you soon. Thanks so much. 